0: I uh, picked this little guy right here up about 13 years ago when I was on a missions trip to Lima, Peru, and uh, I was in the marketplace with one of my lifelong friends, which is known to uh, most of you here, John Mark Bowers. You guys know John Mark. And uh, we were on a missions trip together. I was taking my youth group down, and I met up with him and another group there. And um, we kind of got away from the rest of the group, and we went to the marketplace. And I had him along because, well, he's fluent in Spanish. And uh, I wanted him to help me kind of barter, right, bargain with the people there in the market. And uh, so we were walking around, and my wife reminded me that she was with me too. I didn't remember that, but she was there. I mean, I remember she was on the trip. I didn't remember she was at the marketplace with me. And um, so we were there, we were looking around, and there was this section where there were these um, statues and souvenirs for tourists and idols and these religious icons. Because in Peru, there's this very unique mixture of kind of this old idol worship that's left over from the Aztecs and the Mayans because there's a people group known as the Quechua Indians there. But it's also a deeply religious environment from the Catholic Church. So you have this weird mixture of all that going on. And there was this one section of the market that that was that way. So I was looking around, and I just wanted something to take back, you know, from Peru that I'd remember. And all of a sudden, the Chesley Curse, Struck. The Ches you laugh, you laugh. But the Chesley curse, it's a real thing, let me tell you. If your name is Chesley, then you are going to be prone to random, totally unforeseen, extreme clumsiness. Okay? And it comes up at the worst of times. It also comes in the form of totally destroying your short-term memory in the sense of actually sometimes forgetting where you live. It happens, it, it's real, and it's terrible. Well, it occurred as I was in this crowded little market, I'm looking at these different things, and all of a sudden, boom, an entire row of these things come crashing down. And the owner of this little shop comes at me, and and, and that's how it sounded to me, because I, I don't know Spanish. And he was flapping his arms, I could tell he was a little upset. So uh, I, I said to Mark, I said, what, what is he saying? And Mark said, well, um, he's saying the the idols are fragile. The idols are fragile. Be careful. And he's also saying that one that you broke, you've got to pay for. So I said, okay, I guess that's fair. So I picked it up. And he actually was kind enough to go get me a new one, okay? Um, One that was not broken. And I paid for that and I took it home. But guess what? It broke too. It's missing a foot. The idols really are fragile. And I've never forgotten that incident, nor have I forgotten that statement. The idols are fragile. And the more and more I've thought about that over the years, I think, yeah, yeah, they really are, aren't they? And I really believe God is saying to all of us, always saying to all of us, constantly, moment after moment, day after day, the idols are fragile. Don't look to them. Don't run to them. Don't embrace all these other idols. Look to me for your fulfillment. Look only to me. I'm the only one that can satisfy you. I'm the only one that can give you purpose. I'm the only one that can give you life and meaning. Those idols that you chase after and you surround yourselves with, they're empty, they're meaningless, they're fragile. They can't hold your hopes. They can't give you what you're looking for. The idols really are very, very fragile. And yet, even though they are so fragile, we run to them all the time, don't we? I mean, we just surround ourselves with idols. We are so prone to it, so prone to idolatry. And it's not limited like we might think to the the Bible times where we think of people actually making idols, right? Fashioning them and bowing down physically before them. It's not limited to that. And neither is it limited to the really blatant, obvious, bad things, you know? Like alcohol abuse and drugs and other vices. Idolatry isn't limited to that either. And being a Christian... And having and knowing the truth does not make you immune to idolatry. It goes much deeper. It goes much broader than that. John Calvin had it right when he said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. It's a factory of idols. And every one of us is from His mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. That's so true. That's so very true. We find all kinds of ways and all kinds of things to make into our idols that we go after and that we pursue and and we bow down before in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And it happens in good things as well as bad. It's by no means just the bad things that can become idols. We can do this with all kinds of good things in our lives. And it's really just silly. I mean, when we stop and we think about all the things we turn into idols in our lives, it's really pretty much laughable. I mean, how basic of things that we take and we make into idols. Uh, I mean, we do this with things as basic as clothing. Clothes. I mean, clothes are a good thing. They're an essential thing. Like, I'm really glad you guys wore clothes today. And I know you're glad that I did as well. Clothing, it's a great thing. It's a necessity. But how easy is it to take something like clothing and to turn it into an idol that we obsess over, that we define our whole lives by, that that we look to for satisfaction and happiness as if fabric could do that, right? And if we don't have the right kind of clothes, then our world comes crashing down. An idol, and by no means is this limited to, to younger people, to children and teens. Adults, we're, we're just as capable of turning something this silly into an idol as a kid is, aren't we? Let's, let's be honest. Clothing, we can make it an idol. Um, what about this? Ooh. Oh. Uh. Yeah, we take something like a smartphone, the, the iPhone, and... And other such wonderful modern technology. And before we know it, we don't have it. It has us wrapped around its beautiful, colorful shell. Right? We can take something that's very convenient and it has all kinds of resources available to us and all kinds of wonderful things we can do with this tool. And instead, it can dominate our entire being. I mean, like this is the first thing that we we turn on in the morning and it's with us as we eat breakfast and it's with us as we make our commute and it's there right beside us at work and then we take it home and we sit at our tables with our loved ones and instead of talking to each other, we're all doing this, right? And then it's with us as we're even watching TV, which could be another idol, but that's another topic. And then it's with us as we go to bed. I mean, it can consume our whole life lives. And again, it's not just kids. It's not just teenagers. Adults, we can be pretty sucked into this as well. Something as beneficial and harmless in and of itself as a smartphone can become an idol in our lives. And, and then there's things like sports. Sports. I mean, those are good things, really. Sports. I, I love sports. And, and they're a good concept. They teach discipline and they give you exercise and they create teamwork and you're pursuing the same goal together. So it creates a unifying effect. It can be a really good thing, but I don't have to even go into all the different ways that here in this country for years and years and years, we've made those things a lot of different idols, right? I mean, they, they can dominate every aspect of our, of our thinking and of our time and of our life. It's a really, really big idol in this culture. But it goes beyond even the physical things that I just mentioned. Idolatry can actually creep in even into our family. We can even take our families and our relationships and make them into idols. You know, we parents can idolize our children. We can idolize one another. We can, you can idolize that boyfriend or that girlfriend It goes even into your job. I mean, work, it's a good thing. It's a needed thing. But you can idolize your work, putting it in front of and above everything and everyone else, including God. And one of the most unlikely sources of idolatry that just totally takes us by surprise when we hear it, when we think about it, or when we're confronted by it, is that we can even take this. We can even make church and ministry into an idol. It's possible. You know, when, when it becomes so much about what I want church to be and what I try to make it in my own image, or when it becomes all about the stuff we do, or when it becomes all about what I want to see happen, you know, or my influence or my control and leveraging that for all it's worth, yeah, we can even take something like church and ministry, and make it into an idol. What is so absolutely insidious and dangerous about idolatry is that it's incredibly sneaky and subtle. And what idolatry can do, if we'll let it, is that it can take a good thing. It can take a very good thing, and it can turn it into a bad thing, because we've made the good thing a God thing. That's the danger and subtlety of idolatry. Good things can become bad things if and when we allow them to become God things. So that leads us to ask a question then. What makes an idol an idol? Like, how can I recognize when I'm doing that, when I'm making something, a thing, an activity, a hobby, a person into an idol? How can I recognize that? What defines an idol? Well, let me just put it to you this way. Let me give you this definition. I hope it will be beneficial to you. Idols are anything, anything that we want more than God, Anything that we rely on more than God, and anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. And that covers a lot of different territory, doesn't it? A lot of different things can come under that umbrella. But that's what it is. Anything at all that we want more than God. Anything at all that we rely on, depend on, for satisfaction, for comfort, for hope, whatever, more than God. And anything we look to for greater fulfillment or satisfaction, greater joy than God himself. And it's not as if we don't know how God feels about idolatry. It's not as if he didn't make it very clear, very plain, how serious of a thing it is. Right at the, at the early part of scripture, the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments that he gave is this, Exodus 23, 20 verse 3. You shall not, you might want to think about avoiding, I really would prefer if you didn't, no, you shall have no other gods before me. Pretty clear, pretty direct, right? Deuteronomy 6 5 says this, love, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's your whole being right there. That's everything you are. Put everything you are, this verse says, into your love of God, into your pursuit of Him, into your surrender before Him. Let your love for God and your surrender to Him, let that define everything you are and everything you do. Well, why did God say this? It's a fair question. Why, why was this such a big deal to him? Why was this such an important, serious matter for him? Why did he go to such lengths to so passionately command us against having any other God before or besides him? Is it because he's just so insecure? Is it because he's just so needy? Is it because he has a God-sized ego? <laughs> of course not. No, absolutely not. I want to give you two main reasons why God goes to such lengths over and over, all through Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, to warn us and to command us against idolatry. Two main reasons. Number one, He alone is worthy of our highest devotion and love. He alone is worthy of our highest devotion and love just by virtue of who He is and what He's done. Think about it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Trinity has been active in all of eternity in glory and in majesty and in power unparalleled, worshiped, By millions and millions, really innumerable amounts of angels, where all the time, for all of eternity, they cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these perfect angelic beings, we know from scripture, they wouldn't even look at God, even though they were perfect themselves. They hid their eyes, they hid their faces. And they never stop crying out praise. Why? Because God is worthy. Each member of the Trinity, each member of the Godhead, equally worthy of praise and glory and honor. And then, this Trinity, they, each member actively played a role in creating the entire universe that we know and all that we don't know. Stars and planets and galaxies. And this world in which we live, all the right things that we would need for life, just the exact right degree to the sun and away from the sun and to the moon and away from the moon that we could sustain life to where it was even just a couple degrees differently, all life would cease to exist. Oh, but that's just coincidence, isn't it? It's just random. (laughs) Yeah. Doc Parvin is right now working on a study about the complexity of the human brain. And what he's finding out is what any of us would find out if we did such a study is that the brain, the human brain, any brain, is really like the pinnacle of God's creation. There's nothing more complex. Nothing more intricately put together. More powerful still to this day than any of the supercomputers that we have been able to come up with. That's God. And this God... Father, Son, and Spirit who was active in creation when the most prized aspect of that creation rebelled against God and fell in sin God instantly and had for all of time before that put into plan put into place a plan of redemption to redeem that fallen creation. And the Father who loved His Son for all of eternity, sent that Son, His one and only Son, to this world, this cursed world, that had turned its face against God and spat in His face and said, no, we don't need, we don't want you. He sent His Son anyway, and His very Son took on humanity all for the purpose of giving that humanity and sacrifice for us. Therefore, Therefore, God is worthy of our highest devotion and love. Second reason why it's so important to avoid, to reject, to war against idolatry is because He, God, knows that we are at our best when He is first. We are at our best when He is first. See, it's not just because God is trying to keep us from enjoying life that he says, avoid idols, don't worship any other God before me. It's not because he's trying to box us in and restrict us. It's actually the complete opposite. It's because God knows we are only fully free when we are pursuing him. God knows we are only fully alive when our lives are surrendered before him. And God knows we are only going to be supremely happy when we find our joy in and through Him. When He is the most glorified in and through my life, I am the most content. And I am the most satisfied. And when I'm looking to any other thing in addition to or in front of Him, I'm not going to be as at peace as I will be with Him. I'm not going to be as full of joy as I will be when I am finding my joy in Him. And I am not going to be realizing and and feeling my purpose carried out unless I am just pursuing and exalting His glory and His greatness. God knows we are at our best when He is first. So because of the fact that idolatry gets in the way of this God and because it takes us away from all that we are intended to know and to find and experience in and through God in our relationship with them, idolatry is a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing. It's not anything to take lightly. It's not anything to just ignore and hope it goes away. It never will. No, it takes a serious response and a serious action to deal with what is such a serious, serious problem. We need to have a very particular mindset and a very particular action plan when it comes to idolatry. All of us are, from time to time, going to hear this voice in our ears and this voice over our hearts and our minds. Worship me. Worship me. You're going to find all you need in me. Look to me. You don't have to look to God alone. You can, you can find everything you're wanting in me. And that's going to come in all kinds of different forms. And, and each of us has a different weakness that the enemy is going to exploit. See, he knows our weaknesses. He knows how to push our buttons. And he's always going to do that. He's been at that from the very beginning. Remember in the garden when he said, Did God really say? Did God really say? Oh, man. That fruit looks pretty good. Let me tell you, God's just holding you back. God's just keeping you back from everything that you could experience and be. He's he's afraid. He doesn't want you to really know what it's all about. In fact, he knows if you take that fruit, he's no longer needed in your life. Because guess what? You're going to be your own God. Doesn't that sound good? And he's been at the same trick and scheme and strategy ever since. He's not very original. And he just keeps saying the same thing and packaging it in a different way all throughout time. And as you hear that voice that's customized to you and you see that thing dangled in front of you, I'm a God. I'm a God. Worship me. We need to grab that thing, bash it to pieces, and realize that any other God stacked up before the one true God, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it seems, it's a puny, puny God. Because there is only one Almighty. Only one Almighty. So here's the remedy for our idolatry, because we've talked about what an idol is, we've talked about what the dangers of it are, we've we've talked about why God is commanding us against it, and why He wants us to avoid it. Well, what's the remedy for it? How do we fight against it? What can we take and use against idolatry? It's really a twofold action. Twofold action. Number one is to crush it. We've got to crush it mercilessly. Consistently, continually, we've got to crush every idol. And secondly, we've got to replace it. We've got to replace the thing we crushed. Not with another idol, with Christ alone. With Christ as our first and our highest. So we've got to crush it, every idol, and then we've got to replace it with Christ first and highest. I want to draw your attention to... Scripture as we see this played out, we see this actually as a, as a great powerful example. Second Kings chapter 23, verses 4 through 6, and also uh, we'll look at verse 12. Second Kings chapter 23, verses 4 through 6, and also we'll look at verse 12. This is when King Josiah came into power, and he was able to find the law again that had been forgotten and discarded and totally buried. And when the people that he commanded went into the treasury of the temple to find gold to pay the workers to rebuild things that had fallen down. They brought him the book of the law. And he began to read it, and he began to see what was commanded by God and all that had been forgotten by Israel. And he said, we're in trouble. We need to get back to what is expected of us and get back to worshiping the one true God in truth and in in purity. We've built up all these things in front of God. We cannot allow this to continue. And he went to work. He got busy. And here's what he did. 2 Kings 23, starting in verse 4. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests next in rank and the doorkeepers, to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them. "'outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley "'and took the ashes to Bethel. "'He did away with the idolatrous priests "'appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense "'on the high places of the towns of Judah "'and on those around Jerusalem, "'those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, "'to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. "'He took the Asherah from the temple of the Lord "'to the Kidron Valley.' "'outside Jerusalem, and burned it there. "'He ground it to powder, crushed it, "'and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people.'" And then verse 12, "'He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah "'had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, "'and the altars Manasseh had built "'in the two courts of the temple of the Lord.'" He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. Kidron Valley So over and over again here. It's a designated place of that which should be rejected and that, that which is no longer used in rubble and refuse. See, what we see here in, in King Josiah, And you can read on at some point, and I encourage you to do so, because Josiah did amazing things. He brought in incredible spiritual reform, which God honored and blessed. And what Josiah understood was that first you've got to get rid of all the things that are in front of God. You've got to tear them away. You've got to crush them. It doesn't matter how many there may be. It doesn't matter how long they've been there. And it doesn't matter how valuable they might be. That you've got to realize only God can provide what you're looking for and longing for. And only God is worthy and deserving of your everything. And once he realized that and he owned that in his heart, all the other things just didn't matter to him. And in fact, they were nothing but a great offense in his mind and heart. They were detestable to him as they are detestable to God. And so he did what needed to be done. He crushed them. He ground them to dust. And he got rid of them. But Josiah went on from there and he began replacing every single idol that had been there with a testament and and an observance to the one true God. He put God on his rightful place over Israel. The one true God, the one true king. And they began to honor and worship the Lord alone again. Because it's not enough, it's just not enough to just crush the idols that we've we've built up in our lives. It's not enough just to leave the space that that they've been occupying empty because what's going to happen is there will be another idol to take their place if we just leave that empty. So you can't just leave the spot vacant. What we have to do as we've crushed every idol, we have to replace them with Jesus Christ as our first and highest. We've got to look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to replace all the false saviors that we've been looking to and pursuing. We've got to replace them with him alone as first in our lives. That's his rightful place. It's his rightful, deserved place. He's worthy of no less. Because of who he is, the eternal son of God. And because of what he is, the Messiah. Who sacrificed his entire being all for our sake. He was crushed for every act of idolatry. And every sin that is tied to every act of idolatry. Because, listen to me, every sin... Every sin at its heart, at the root, is a sin of idolatry. Because every time we choose to sin, whatever that may be specifically, every time I choose to sin, I'm saying, this sin right here, right now, that I'm choosing to give myself to, it's more important to me than God. And it's going to fulfill me in a way that God can't. It's what you're saying to yourself. And no matter what God is and what he has done, it doesn't matter in this moment, I want it. It's a sin of idolatry. And every sin we've ever committed, every act of idolatry that we have ever committed was placed on Jesus and he was crushed so that we would be free then to crush every idol. He was crushed so that we would be free to crush every idol that comes up in place of Him. John 18, 1. Here's how I know that is true. I didn't just make that up. John 18, 1. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, right after He gave that wonderful, beautiful, powerful, high priestly prayer, in John 17, we read this. When He had finished praying, Jesus left with His disciples and crossed... This is so cool. Are you ready for it? The Kidron Valley. The very place that Josiah made sure all the idols had been crushed and ground into dust and were scattered over. All those things that were capturing Israel's heart for so long that they got rid of. They put them in the Kidron Valley. A place designated for the crushing of those things. And here is Jesus crossing over the Kidron Valley... Let's pick up again. On the other side of the Kidron Valley, there was a garden, Garden of Gethsemane. And he and his disciples went into it. And he went into that garden for one purpose, to be crushed. To be crushed. Matthew 26, 37-39 picks up right where we just left off in John 18, 1 says this, He, Jesus, took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul, my very soul, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Even before he went to death on the cross, he was already there. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. In Isaiah 53 verse 5, we are told in great detail what that cup really was, what the cup that Jesus had to drink and bear and that he asked if there was any way for it to be removed that it would be the cup. was the very cup of the Father's full wrath and judgment on all of our sin, all of our idolatry. It was all put into the cup That was full and overflowing with wrath and with judgment and righteous anger that was given not to you and me, but to his very Son. And he drank it. He drank it all. Isaiah 53 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. That's why we need to reject every idol, church. Because the eternal sinless Son of God who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him the very spotless Lamb of God, took on to Himself all of our idolatry and all of our sin and received the hammer of God's judgment on it so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could go free, so that we could be declared righteous, so that we could be free to choose to reject idolatry and instead to worship and love Him alone. So, the statement in 1 John 5.21 that I have there at the bottom of your guide. Dear children, keep yourselves from idol. Listen to me, that's a continual choice and a continual necessity. It's not just do this once and you're good. It's keep keeping, keep keeping yourself from every idol. Because it's going to be a continual fight. The struggle is real and the struggle is frequent. And we have to choose to war against this every single moment. Because remember, idolatry is very far-reaching. And it's very subtle. So we need to ask God all the time, as David did in Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O God. Test me. See if there is any wicked way in me. Get rid of it. And lead me only in the way everlasting. It's a continual fight. But here's the good news. It's a fight we're not alone in. Because we, through Christ, if you're in Christ, we have the very power of God in us, working through us, warring against the idols for us. It's not up to you and me alone. And that's really good news. Would you pray with me? And before I actually lead us in prayer, I just want to check in with you. I want to ask, is there anyone here today that you've heard this message and you, you agree with the statements and the concepts that have been mentioned? But you know with all of your heart that you have never given your heart to the Messiah that I talked about, to Jesus, to the Son of God, you've never surrendered your life to Him, asking Him to be your Lord and your Savior. If that's you, then you are at this moment hopeless and helpless against the war and the fight of idolatry. Because the only way you're going to have any victory at all is through what I just said, the power of the Holy Spirit in you, which comes only through Jesus Christ. So, if you've never surrendered your heart to Him, I just, I plead with you, do so now. It doesn't have to be this big, lofty affair. It's something you can do right where you are in your very seat, where you, in the privacy of your heart and mind, say to Him, Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I've committed the sin of idolatry for my whole life but I want you to be the only God I look to and the only God I live for would you please save me be my Lord be my Savior run my life I give you my life right now the Bible says if you believe that in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord your Lord then you will or you are you will be or you are saved that's the promise of God and if if anyone here as I was saying that or talking or even right now you've done that you're doing that you're making that commitment to Christ as your Lord and Savior for the very first time I just want to praise God for that, and I want to pray for you. Is there anyone who would say, yeah, that's me. I just gave my life to Christ. I just committed myself to him, and and I just want you to pray for me as I go forward. Anyone else, anyone at all like that? Anyone say, yeah, that's me. I made that commitment. Or maybe you want to make that commitment. I'd love to pray with you. Anybody at all? Okay, then my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm just as susceptible to idolatry as you are. It's something I have to fight against every moment. And sometimes it's harder than others. Isn't that true for you? So what I want to do in this moment is just pray for you. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me. That we together make the constant decision to not tolerate idolatry in our lives to go aggressively against it to war against it with our very being and to not let it speak and just ravage it and realize every other thing against God coming up before him in our lives every other pretender to God is nothing but a puny fake God Is there anybody who would say, yeah, pray for me in my fight against idolatry? It's really kicking me right now. Pray for me. Anyone else? Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. Thanks for your honesty. Anyone else? Amen. You pray for me too, okay? You pray for your pastor. You pray for your pastors. We need your prayer in this just as you need ours. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the power that you alone have and provide, the meaning that you alone provide, the purpose that you alone provide, the peace that you alone provide, the joy that you alone provide, it's all in you. It's not in any other thing or person or activity. God, help us to tear down and cast down and crush every other idol that we are tempted to build up in your place. Reveal those to us, God, and then give us the desire to destroy them and then to replace them with you alone. May you and your son and your spirit be first and highest in everything we are and everything we do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.